Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of the State of Venezuela podcast. I'm your host Rafael, and I want to thank you again as always for tuning in and supporting the show. By now you've likely noticed that the show has placed a lot of emphasis on the internationality of the political crisis in Venezuela, but we haven't yet discussed the role of the legitimate interim president of Venezuela, Juan Guaido. Today, Juan Guaido is recognized by the United States and roughly 60 other countries around the world as the rightful president of Venezuela. This international coalition of democracies has been instrumental in applying pressure to isolate the Maduro dictatorship. By taking out the lingering fragments of its existence outside Venezuela that allows the regime to count on exit strategies to survive. Leading the charge from across the pond is Dr. Vanessa Neumann, Ambassador of the Interim Government of Venezuela to the United Kingdom and Ireland. Ambassador Neumann was a central figure in a recent historic decision from the London High Court that unequivocally recognizes the legitimacy of Juan Guaido over Nicolas Maduro. That decision also barred Maduro from accessing several dozen tons of gold bullion in the Bank of England worth billions of dollars, successfully cutting off a major lifeline for the dictatorship. In this episode, Ambassador Neumann and I discussed the United Kingdom's support for the Venezuelan people, details of the case of the Venezuelan gold in the Bank of England, as well as the recognition of the international community of Juan Guaido, not Nicolas Maduro, as the constitutionally recognized interim president of Venezuela. So I hope you enjoy this very special edition of the State of Venezuela, featuring Ambassador Vanessa Neumann. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the State of Venezuela podcast. Today, we have a very special guest on the show. She's an authority on Latin American politics and security, as well as on crime terror pipelines, particularly on stemming illicit trade as a counter-terrorist and counterinsurgency strategy that supports businesses. She's mm -hmm. the founder of Asymmetrica, a political risk firm with a specialty in Latin American politics and security. She's the author of Blood Profits and a co-author of The Many Criminal Heads of the Golden Hydra. She was the academic reviewer for the United States Special Operations Command's Manual on the Assessing Revolutionary and Insurgent Strategies Teaching Manual on Counterinsurgency in Columbia, holds a PhD in political philosophy from Columbia University and fellowships at Yale University, Columbia University, and the Foreign Policy Research Institute. Last year, she was appointed ambassador and chief of mission for Venezuela to the court of St. James's in the United Kingdom. And this year, she was a central figure in the historic London High Court decision that, quote, unequivocally recognized the legitimacy of the interim presidency of Juan Guaido over Nicolas Maduro. So with that, it's my great honor to introduce the ambassador of the interim government of Venezuela to the United Kingdom and Ireland, Dr. Vanessa Neumann. Welcome to the State of Venezuela podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Rafael. It's wonderful to be on with you. It's, it's, it's a pleasure to be here, and I'm a fan of your podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Neumann. So like I mentioned in my introduction, you have a very extensive resume, which I'm sure 
had a hand in your approval by the Venezuelan National Assembly to uh, be approved to your diplomatic post. So let's get started here by having the listeners know a bit more about your background and what ultimately led to your appointment to your current post. Uh, well, it's like all things in life, it was a little bit of a meandering path, right? I mean, I have been sort of very involved in commenting on Venezuelan politics and security for a really long time. And for years, at least since 2007, 8, 9, I think in 2009, I did Newsnight in, when I was living in London uh, in February 2009. And, and you know, I, I've done a lot of uh, Colombian radio. I was doing a lot of American media. But the political opposition parties in Caracas didn't really know sort of I existed. I sort of seemed to hit their radar in 2017. Um, because I went back down to Caracas. I was born in Caracas, and I was very upset by what I saw happening. That's when the uh, Venezuela lit up with these massive protests that became, uh, the repression became increasingly brutal. And by the time I went in May 2017, you know, they were already shooting teenage kids point blank range in the chest and running them over with APVs in the streets and millions of people out. So I went there, um, got a warning from the regime that they knew who I was and they'd be watching me. I said something like, enjoy the show. Uh, on my way back from New York, from back to New York, where I was living at the time, I sort of got a hold of anybody I could and said, we've got to, we've got to do something about Venezuela. I spoke to anybody I could. If I ever got a hold of any U.S. government official, I spoke to them. I did as much media as I could. Uh, I helped organize with a group called SOS Venezuela, the New York chapter, the hunger bonds protest. So then when Goldman Sachs bought $300 million of primary market uh, bonds, which basically put the money into Maduro's pocket rather than a trader's pocket, we organized a protest. And it was like, and I think they were like, they literally came out with their German shepherd and, and had a look. And I know for a fact from a friend of mine who actually works at Goldman Sachs that their attitude was like, it's 20 kids. Who cares? And, and I, you know, I had said to my friend, I said, this is terrible who runs SOS Venezuela. He said, this is a scandal. What can we do? I said, do you know media? I said, yeah. I said, can you organize your group, SOS Venezuela, and can you get posters made? And we'll go to the headquarters tomorrow. And here are the talking points. So because of my business, I've done things like on security and how to move the political needle, how to build the political will to fix certain problems. I, you know, I helped the kids with the talking points, etc. And we got the front page of every newspaper, right? I mean, it was like the Wall Street Journal, El Comercio, El País, you know, the Financial Times. And it also sort of heralded the age of sanctions, the, the hardcore sanctions, uh, and getting people to back away. And I think at that point, because I was then got very involved with these diaspora groups, that a lot of them came from the political parties in Venezuela originally. They were sort of outposts of the political parties. So that resonated back home. They're like, who's, who's this woman who's helping you and, and who's gotten involved in all the protests? I moved down to Washington, D.C. in 2017, in September 2017, to sort of inject myself partly into the conversation about Venezuela. Suddenly, Venezuela became a hot topic and because of the protests. And all of these think tanks were having these events, but they were, at the time, mostly American. And I'm like, we need more Venezuelans involved in this conversation, you know, uh, mm -hmm. so that it doesn't become politicized, that Venezuela is a real place with real people enduring real suffering. And it doesn't just get into some political tug of war in Washington, D.C. And then I became very involved with the opposition people who were there. A lot of them are now the embassy or part of Carlos Vecchio's embassy. And, um, and you know, we did protests together, etc. So by the time I was considered, so that was 
by the time I moved to DC or soon after I moved to DC, by 2018, I was a known entity around the opposition groups. And then when Guaido comes in, they needed to name somebody to London. And they, they had considered someone and they had actually nominated someone who actually ended up working with me when I got appointed. And she just didn't want it. She said, I can't. She was a PhD at LSE. And she said, I don't want to do this. So then I, they said, well, who's out there? And somebody said, you know, Vanessa Neumann would be really great because I used to live in London for about 11 years and I'm, I, I'm divorced from, I grew up with some of people in the British establishment. So I understand the culture. I was actually married inside the Palace of Westminster, you know, where the, where the parliament is. Oh, wow. uh, had my reception in the UK parliament. So I understand the politics and sort of the secret handshakes, if you will, of the Brits. And so they said, you know, Vanessa would be good and she speaks security, et cetera. So that started in mid, uh, exactly my birthday, actually, which is February 18th, 2019, I was considered. And it sort of was under discussion with the various political parties, which we call the G4 in Caracas. They're like, oh, no, yeah, she's qualified, but, you know, she's not one of the political parties. And, you know, they were sort of dividing up the appointments by political party, right? Which is not unheard of. And then I got a call in early March, I guess. Uh, well, mid-March, I suppose. And uh, from Rafael Castillo, who's now working with, I think it's Rafael Castillo, one of them who's now working either with Carlos Vecchio or Gustavo Tarre. With Gustavo Tarre, yeah, I know. Yeah, Tarre is our ambassador to the OAS and Vecchio is our ambassador to the US. So one of those guys who had now become really, really good friends of mine from D.C., said, Vanessa, tell me, please tell me you're in D.C. on Wednesday morning. And I said, well, I could be. I happened to be in New York at the time. And I said, why? He said, I, we need you to testify before Congress. It needs to be, uh, you know, someone who speaks absolutely perfect English, is a Venezuelan, understands security, and will go to bat, you know, for our point of view. So there had been a legislation that was being considered, had been proposed by the Democrats about, you know, passing legislation to prevent armed intervention in Venezuela. Uh, and it's something called like Preventing Armed Intervention in Venezuela Act, right? Literally. And I said, you've got it. Absolutely. You know, I, I did all the paperwork and I, I gave my testimony and I think it was six days. They were happy with it. They, you know, people in Caracas said, well done. Because what I managed to do was to, the other two people testifying were two, ironically, we were all women, which is interesting. That rarely happens. Uh, were two women and they were academics, but they were American. And mm. they had a very sort of legalistic perspective. And I turned the conversation to the crisis in Venezuela. My only argument was not that we must have an armed intervention, but that by passing the, act, the, passing the law would send a signal to Maduro to continue slaughtering the Venezuelan people, that he was safe. Right. And that you don't need the legislation because you need authorization under the U.S. Constitution anyway. So that passing that would just be simply a political act you know, of Democrat versus Republican in the U.S. and would have a devastating effect on the Venezuelan people. So mm -hmm. by the end of my testimony, we managed to turn the conversation from absolutely preventing armed intervention to what can we do to help Venezuela. And then six days later, uh, the National Assembly approved me. And that, that was it. Okay, wow. That's quite a journey that you had there. Um, so now that you're in your post, what would you say is the greatest challenge that you have in being in the role that you've been in for the past year or so? 
Well, two. Well, uh, two that are sort of two different manifestations of the same issue, sort of resources, right? So people don't realize that we have actually done this work unpaid all this time. Uh, we still have not received a salary. It's supposed to apparently be in the pipeline, but there has been no paycheck associated with this. Uh, and fortunately, I, you know, had, I, I had some resources of my own in the bank, both from personal family and, and uh, personal things, and then also from my business, which I uh, sort of mothballed to do this. And the other thing is also my, I don't have full credentials, full diplomatic credentials. Uh, because the United Kingdom, although I have worked very, very closely with them, and we have a phenomenal relationship, and I've got, I joke that I have more back channels into the British government than Gaza has tunnels, um, <laughs> which, you know, uh, which is, has enabled us to get a lot done. It may, it does make a difference. So Rocio Manedo, who's the Chavista side, still remains un-PNG'd, which is persona non grata, when you sort of pull someone's diplomatic credentials and kick them out. They have not done that because the British embassy continues to operate fully within Venezuela. No country that has PNG'd Maduro's ambassador has managed to remain open in Venezuela. And since they have kicked out the Americans and the Canadians, keeping the British in post is really, really important to get a real sense of ground truth. They are, in effect, the eyes and the ears and the sort of you know back channel into the Maduro regime. So I've had to sort of accept that role of being, I know, the Financial Times when I first arrived did a profile of me and they called me, you know, the most, um, or the most unconventional ambassador in London. Um, and uh, I, they, they meant it as a compliment. I hope so, because Michael Stott has since become a, a good friend. And so operating like that. And then my basically staff, my team at the embassies, uh, they're all volunteers. And it's an honor and a privilege to work with them. They're very, they're highly educated. You know, one has a, you know, PhD, the other one, uh, you know, have advanced degrees, one of them, you know, and speak absolutely perfect English and incredible jobs. And uh, they just love their country. So that's something that I really want people to understand is that this has really been sort of a form of guerrilla warfare in a diplomatic front where we have gone up against a fierce enemy who's absolutely brutal with oodles of resources, endless resources, and backed up by, you know, Russia, China, Iran, etc. And we have managed to sort of corner Maduro, at least in the UK, uh, with zero paycheck, zero resources, and a gang of just willing volunteers. And, you know, by winning the, the political will of the UK to help us. So it's a real credit to the love of the nation that we have gotten this far um, under these conditions. And I think that's really worth highlighting, that it's been a huge challenge, but it is also one that has been met by not just me, but the people who work with me. You know, the, the, the diaspora loves Venezuela, and people in Venezuela need to understand that as well. We're with you. Absolutely. I wholeheartedly agree. I think it's really important to point out that apart from the resources that the regime has in maintaining the uh, status quo in Venezuela, they also have the advantage of years of a sort of propaganda machine giving the international community at large this false understanding of what's going on in the country. In fact, 
I've watched a few of the interviews that you've done on mainly BBC and Al Jazeera. And as I was telling you before we got started the interview, my goodness, these these anchors, I try really hard to put into practice the belief that you shouldn't attribute to malice that which can be attributed to incompetence, but (laughs) their sudden rush to judgment and even talk over you with some sense of authority on the subject of Venezuela is just unbelievable to me. In in your experience, uh, what stands out for these people as maybe the biggest misconception about the situation in Venezuela that over and over again, you find yourself having to clarify? Uh, Well, you know, the the biggest misconception is, of course, about the legitimacy of Juan Guaido, right? The fact that, you know, the reason, and in my last BBC Hard Talk interview, because I've done two now, in the last one, I finally sort of crystallized it by saying Juan Guaido was created by Nicolás Maduro. The reason why Juan Guaido exists as interim president is because Maduro stole the elections of 2018. If he had not stolen the elections, and we had had free and fair elections, there would be no Juan Guaido. Juan Guaido comes to power because the, according to Article 233 of the Constitution, when the presidency is considered vacant, because they usually refer to either dead or sick or incapable, but it also lends, you know, incapacitated rather, um, you know, like if you had a stroke or, or were, you know, on life support or something like that, that would qualify. But there's also another interpretation of that, and it's a constitution. So keep in mind, constitutions have these, um, you know, nuances that it's vacant because he was not elected. And if you look at the wording, it says when there is a vacancy of a el- properly elected president. Uh, the president of the National Assembly will then take over and get to free and fair elections within 30 days. Now, what has happened is we have tried to get to free and fair elections, uh, presidential elections, but that doesn't happen. Maduro won't allow them. And in fact, as you might have seen this week, we got the joint statement approved, signed on to by, I think we're up to 32 or 33 countries to say parliamentary elections of just Maduro's people handpicked by him on December 6th is a farce. These Mm -hmm. 32 countries have said, we want free and fair presidential elections. What has happened is, you know, Guaido is there to get, he's a guardian for democracy. And I keep trying to explain that. The other thing I keep trying to explain is, they always come at me with this sort of like, well, the United States in the 1970s and South America did this terrible thing and no, 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 no. And if you back them in the 1970s, and I'm like, you know what? I'm not here to discuss what America did in the Western Hemisphere in the 1970s. You mean, we could have that debate if you want, which I really have no particular interest in having that debate, um, just because I don't, I think I've got enough on my plate, quite frankly, with current events, without Mm -hmm. going back 40 years, um, that, you know, in the 70s and the 80s, and they said, well, America is involved, and therefore it's bad, or... I don't like Trump. Trump supports this and therefore it's bad. And I I keep saying, look, I'm not here to defend any president of the United States and tell you who you need to like. That is between you, your conscience and your God, you know, or or your voting ballot. Okay. Uh, What I'm here to tell you is that once again, Venezuela is a real place with real people with real suffering. Whatever you think of Trump, the United States in the 70s and the 80s, these people are really suffering and they are being murdered, starved and tortured. 
And you need to just grasp that and take that. And we need uh, the international community to take that seriously. And if you really want to defend human rights and you care about development in Latin America, you need to help us get rid of this guy, whatever your opinion of the U.S., Trump, or anybody else, or the Brits for that matter, right? Um, so if your commitment is to human rights and development, you need to be opposed to Maduro because he is anti-human rights and he's thrown the country back into, you know, I think we have the lowest reserves in 50 years. They've just been kicked out of OPEC, which Venezuela co-founded in 1960 with Saudi Arabia. I mean, so if you care about development and human rights, you should be on side to get Maduro out of power and get the country restored to democracy, period. So those two things are really the, the sort of battlegrounds that I usually have in most interviews. It's really unfortunate, too, because while you're being interviewed by some of these individuals from across the pond, I might add, and they interject with the role of the United States, one of the immediate gut reactions I have is, you know, to what extent does that bear any relevance to the electoral farce of the 2018 presidential election that created that vacuum that Juan Guaido asserted his right to uh, to assume according to the Venezuelan constitution, because that election was characterized as neither free nor fair by not just the opposition, but by over 50 countries. So the international community at large realized that the presidential election of 2018 failed to meet internationally recognized standards. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, failed to re meet internationally recognized standards is, is like an understatement. I mean, first of all, you know, all the major political leaders of all the big parties were all inhabilitados, inhabilitated, meaning, you know, he decided they can't run uh, or in prison, some of them being tortured, some of them exiled. And even if they were in the country, they couldn't run. Um, you know, he, he said, no, you know, you can't fund the political parties, close their bank accounts, um, you know, close any access to money from overseas, close access to money within the country you know, uh, move the polling stations around, uh, bust people in, uh, cheated in the voting. And then, you know, of course, the coup de grace, of course, is the guy who uh, ran Smart Smartmatic, which was the voting machines, uh, Antonio Mujica, flew to London and said, these guys cheated uh, because he wanted to save his brand of his company, which also runs elections in other countries. And that for a long time had the uh, contract with the Chavistas, but the Chavistas had taken his machine uh, for this election and kind of changed the inside um, to God knows what, uh, you know, reprogrammed it without supervision and kicked out his people uh, once they were sort of playing around with the voting machines. So he said, I can't vouch for these voting machines because he didn't want to get into the middle of all that. So he comes and leaves Venezuela and goes to London and, and says the election was stolen. And all these 50 countries say this in no way meets any free and fair election. Uh, so, yes, it's, it's people need to understand that that's a fact um, that has been, you know, certified by, as you say, over 50 countries. And all we have ever wanted and asked for is to get back to free and fair elections. I mean, we've been developing strategies to try and motivate Maduro to your time is done. Get on an airplane out and let the country have elections. 
there was something that you were asked in that BBC Hard Talk interview that I was wondering if you could, I'd like to give you this platform so that you could actually get the space to have the time that was not allotted to you to perfectly answer the question. He asked you a loaded question, basically saying that the Venezuelan opposition should participate in what are already pre-existing signs of farce in these parliamentary elections. So could you speak, uh, Ambassador, to the conditions that are obvious, so obvious, in fact, that the European Union has already said that they will not recognize any results from that election in December? Yeah, I mean, and for Josep Borrell, you know, who's basically the foreign secretary of the EU, it's sort of, you know, basically his role to say, you know, to say that's not, that doesn't meet conditions is saying something because he's pretty, he's really considered rather sort of left wing and he's, you know, he's, he's been always the softer line. He's quite the contrary of a hardliner. So the conditions are basically, um, you know, all the main political leaders are still inhabilitados, inhabilitated, or in prison, or in exile, for the most part. Um, and not all of them, but a lot of the big ones. Then, when the our political parties, in opposition, I think it was 27, said they're not going to participate because they have... Um, uh, it was called by the Asamblea Nacional Constituyente, which is an illegal national assembly that was basically set up by Maduro. So what happened was... In 2015, the people sweep a supermajority into the National Assembly, which is basically our last free and fair election. And Maduro says, I don't like this, basically says, we're going to remove three people so that they lose their supermajority. The supermajority, of course, enables you to even rewrite the Constitution and remove a president, right? So by eliminating three people that one way. And then he said, I don't like this. I'm going to set up my own parallel thing. It's as if Donald Trump, and just like to understand this, like people need to see it in like America or the UK, right? If this happened in your country, it's as if Donald Trump said, oh, well, the Republicans have now swept both houses of Congress. I don't like that. I'm going to start a new Congress. It's on that scale. Actually, uh, Dr. Norman, there's... Um there is a journalist who I think he's the Latin America editor for the Wall Street Journal, and he presented a really good analogy that goes to your point, because he says some politicians and folks on the left in the United States, Europe and Latin America wonder if what's happening in Venezuela is a coup against de facto President Nicolas Maduro. So he presented this analogy that might uh, help. And I want to see if you agree with this assessment, Ambassador. He says, right. imagine a world where U.S. President Donald Trump stacked the Supreme Court and other institutions with political hacks. The midterms come and Democrats win a resounding two thirds majority in Congress. Trump, stunned, gets courts to declare Congress null and void and ignores their decisions. Then Trump creates another Congress filled with his own supporters. <laughs> to pass laws. When there are street protests against this, he sends out the National Guard to crack down and more than 100 people are killed by security forces, thousands arbitrarily arrested. Top Democratic leaders arrested or forced into exile, some are tortured. Trump then heads for re-election, but his administration bars any top Democrat from running. The Democrats right. boycott the election. Trump holds it anyway and wins. No credible <laughs> observers are allowed. Even the guy who set up the electronic voting system, like you said, Dr. Neumann, says right. there's fraud. That's right. Trump is sworn in by his fake Congress. 
the real Congress, meanwhile, says he's an illegitimate president. And according to law, they swear in the head of Congress as the legitimate president until new elections can be held. That interim president is recognized by over 50 countries. Now, is that a coup or the real Congress? Or has the coup already taken place by the president? And that, in a nutshell, is what happened in Venezuela. Would you that's exactly, uh, say that's appropriate? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. I love that summary. I can't remember who wrote it, but I, I read that summary too, and it's absolutely brilliant. Um, that's exactly what happened in 2018. And what he's doing in, 20, in 2020 is basically the same. It's a replay. The people have been calling for free and fair presidential elections. They have a rerun of their stolen election of 2018. And he's just refusing. He's like, I don't want to do that. All I want to do is to have parliamentary elections, which they're also up for elections. But again, first of all, let's start with this. There isn't a single voting machine in the country. Not one. <laughs> that, who's, who's counting the votes? Where are the voting machines coming from? So, you know, they've all burned up. Basically, it seems to be our understanding is, our intelligence is, that the Chavistas burned their own voting machines uh, because they want to get new ones that's from a company that's owned through a testaferro by Jorge Rodriguez in Argentina. Um, these are machines that they will control, that's not an independent provider, will not be checked. And we don't know of gas if they'll have them in time. What is the system of, of, of the security of this? We have no access to, uh, you know, the internet is jammed. Uh, you have no access to television. You have no access to funds. He stole this. He basically stole the emblems of the opposition political parties and said, I'm going to take your logo. It's like, I'm going to take your Republican or Tory or Labour Party emblems and colors. And I'm just going to have the election even without you guys. But pretend that we have this, you know, these opposition political parties. And in the meantime, you know, anybody who speaks out against Maduro continues to be tortured um, or gone after. I mean, as you know, I have an order out for my arrest. I have two of my childhood friends were assassinated on the orders of Dios Estado Cabello, uh, but that was not for political reasons. That's because they were, they saw some of his uh, drug trafficking networks. So, you know, these people are hardcore. And they will not give the people the opportunity to express their will because they know that they will lose. Uh, they know that they will lose because we have something like eight, more than eight out of 10 hospitals don't have running water. We have 9 million people on the verge of starvation. So these, he's repeating the same farce again, except now with the parliamentary elections. When what we want is, you can have parliamentary and presidential but we need to meet those terms and we cannot stop until we meet our obligation to the Venezuelan people, to the constitution of Venezuela, to have free and fair elections. That's our mission and we cannot drop the ball until we get there. Right. That's absolutely right. Um, I want to turn to the role of the UK and Europe as a whole when it comes to the Venezuelan crisis, because there's also this misconception, as we mentioned earlier, that the United States is somehow single-handedly orchestrating opposition to the Maduro dictatorship, despite 59 other countries recognizing Juan Guaido as the interim president. So right. as ambassador to the United Kingdom and Ireland, what can you tell us about the stance on Venezuela from our allies across the pond? Oh, right. Well, the UK has taken a very, uh, a very strong view and has continuously reasserted its support for Guaido. And let me repeat, they're on the ground. So they're actually seeing it in the flesh. And I, you know, I have communication with them and they're 
they care deeply about Venezuela and the Venezuelan people. And I hear they're uh, on an individual, on a personal level, their shock and horror at what they see happening at the attacks on or the torture or, uh, you know, the um, the censorship of all dissent. So they're very much on board with the, the Venezuelan people and have come out once and, uh, you know, one time after another, after another, very firmly of the country needs to have a transition to get to free and fair elections. Maduro needs to leave. And they made that very clear. I think it was uh, the former foreign secretary, Jeremy Hunt, uh, on February 4th, 2019, recognized Juan Guaido with the statement that he considers Maduro a kleptocracy and a human rights abuser and illegitimate because of the stolen election and therefore needs to end. And they have been very firm that Maduro cannot stay, uh, that Maduro staying is unacceptable to the United Kingdom. Um, the rest of Europe also has, you know, concern. Europe is, you know, with the 27 countries voting together, it's a little bit more complicated because you have different positions, different agendas. And don't forget that quite a lot of uh, illicit money also from Maduro flows. Uh, it has flowed certainly into Podemos in, in Spain. It has flowed into Cinque Stelle in uh, Italy, and that's now proven. So sort of to kind of get those countries to paralyze. In Ireland, you have Sinn Féin, which is the former IRA, uh, the political party was the IRA, is very aligned with Maduro as well, and they're in a coalition government. So that makes it a bit more complicated. But even the most you know, left-leaning agrees that what's happening in Venezuela, the hunger, the torture, is unacceptable, and that the crisis is being prolonged by Maduro's refusing to have free and fair elections. And the reason why he continues to stay in power is because he's basically become a criminal organization. And that has become very apparent to everyone as well, because they've seen, you know, the narcotics flow into their country. In Holland, you had weapons and a bomb was, uh, you know, discovered in uh, the gold also was discovered in Heathrow Airport and Gatwick Airport. And, you know, they see the effects and they see the effects also on, on their neighbors, on Colombia, on the British overseas territories. So there is no civilized country on earth, you know, a, demo- a democracy that wants, that agrees that Maduro is a democracy, just not one, basically. So um, they're starting to come together. And the more that he prolongs the crisis, the easier he makes it for us, really, to build that coalition. And they're realizing that you can't dialogue with these guys, that they had pushed to dialogue. We did dialogue, and they got up from the table. Chavistas got up from the table at the point where we said we want free and fair presidential elections. That's what they won't agree to. Uh, so the role of all those countries is also in sanctions. Um, they have passed a lot of a lot of asset freezes. Um, they have detained allies of Maduro, and uh, and that will continue to happen. So uh, we count we count on that. We count on that growing political will, even across the pond. Across the pond and throughout the world at large, as you correctly point out, the countries that support Juan Guaido, as opposed to the countries that support Maduro, the difference between the two countries or sets of countries really is night and day, as you point out. And you can even see it in the diaspora and the direction 
in which they head as they flee Venezuela. I don't see a large diaspora heading to Moscow or to Beijing (laughs) or to Tehran, but they do show up in London, in Madrid, in Paris. And last, no, this wasn't last year. This was earlier this year, I believe. Juan Guaido actually did a brief tour across uh, the Western world, not just DC, but he made a stop in London and Madrid. And when he was in London, he met with Prime Minister Boris Johnson too, correct? That's right. Exactly. Yes. I'm very proud. That's one of my prouder moments that I managed to sort of set that up for him. There's a rather sort of amusing story, which I, I, you know, I think I can touch on, which is uh, I knew that I was called upon to try and arrange the meetings because the idea was he was to leave Colombia, meet with Duque, uh, and then was going to fly to, uh, to Europe and the UK would be his first stop. So I kept insisting that, you know, to the FCO, I said, I need to, I need to come and talk to you. And not over the phone, like in person, I need to come in. And they said, okay, you know, we'll schedule it for some time next week. And I said, no, 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 like tomorrow. And uh, so I walk in and I said, Juan Guaido is coming to London. And they said, what? <laughs> <laughs> the reaction, their faces were bl- you know, blanched. And they said, when? I said, well, I don't know, like next week or like in 10 days or something, you know. And they said, we're working on the logistics. And they said, can you get him out of the country? I'm like, well, we think so. We're working on that too. But it was literally sort of three people in the entire world knew this was going to happen. And uh, I was one of them. And uh, and then they were sort of slightly incredulous. You know, we had set up the meeting with the foreign secretary, uh, Dominic Robb, and that, you know, the, a video would be made where he would say, again, you know, double down on, I recognize Juan Guaido as the interim president of Venezuela and a video making, you know, welcoming him to London, etc. But they were like a little hesitant about confirming the prime minister until we were absolutely sure that that was going to happen. So then the minute, you know, Guaido suddenly turns up in Bogota in the meeting with Duque, I started texting them, you know, by encrypted app. And I'm like, see, I told you he's coming. <laughs> and it was it was totally surreal and poor man sort of arrived and we were sort of tracking his flight the brits were sort of tracking his flight about you know when he would land and the schedule was so tight um that he landed in the morning at some airport you know i was coming in from europe it was so unusual like i, I couldn't even meet him at the airport myself which is what an ambassador normally does uh because i was coming in from brussels and so a British delegation sort of met him and I'm not sure whether he had slept on the flight or not. And we just went back to back one meeting after another, uh, first with Minister Pincher, Christopher Pincher, uh, the Minister for the Americas, then the Foreign Secretary in an official meeting. And then we did uh, Financial Times, CNN, BBC Radio 4. And then uh, we went to meet with the Prime Minister at, at number 10. And for me, it was a great honor. And I got the text, you know, in the morning uh, saying, you know, we're confirmed. And I and I kept saying, it's got to be not just with the prime minister. I want it at number 10. Uh, and it, and they said, done. It's you got it. So and for me to sit at the right hand of uh, of my president. So when I actually I'll tell you a funny story, because it sort of highlights how real the struggle is, you know, I had spoken with my president, Juan Guaido, you know, before he arrived, but I had never actually met him in person. Yeah. So I had gotten appointed, you know, by him and on the recommendation of others who know me for years, uh, but I had never actually met him. So what happened is 
I walk in with the meeting with the, you know, to the meeting with uh, Minister Pincher, and at the sight of uh, at the sight of him, I burst into tears, and I said, "He's here! My president is here! He has made it!" And the fact that we had beaten the the dictatorship to get him out, get him on a flight, and get him into the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. And I had done this, you know, I had like organized the entire London agenda. Uh, I, I, I just wept with joy. I wept with joy. And then when we walked into number 10 in the evening and, you know, he's seated with the prime minister and I'm seated, you know, just a few feet apart from him. Um, I think I've put the photograph like on my Twitter handle, on Facebook, on LinkedIn. And uh, it was a very proud moment for me to be there um, facilitating and uh, yeah, and and as I said, doing all of this under these circumstances, you know, without a salary, without a budget, and just literally building the goodwill we needed to make this happen, and uh, pure diplomacy, um, and and it happened. So yeah, I'm 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 very proud of that moment. I have to say. Yeah, as you should be, and I should point out that. Um... This was actually the second time that Juan Guaido actually managed to leave the country and do a goodwill tour and come back unscathed. He had done that the first time around, doing a trip throughout the Americas, and people made it a big deal because they thought that he was going to try and set up a government in exile. And mm -hmm. I think because, based on historical precedent, I could understand the reasoning behind that sort of dose of skepticism, we can say. But- mm -hmm. You know, he proved them wrong that time around. He proved them wrong this time around. And yeah. I think that might have contributed even to the um, to the other big accomplishment that I think you played a pivotal role in. As I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, you played a pivotal role in the case of the Venezuelan gold in the Bank of England, where yeah. basically the high court ruled that Maduro's regime is officially barred from accessing around 14 tons of bullion stored in the vaults of the BOE. More. Oh, oh. No, more. It's more than 31 tons. Oh, I, I'm mistaken. It's okay. It's more than 31 tons. And I think I think it's worth something around $2.2 billion at the moment. Because don't forget the price of gold is rising because of the coronavirus. People are fleeing to gold. So Right. Yes. So, mm -hmm. yes. Okay. 31 tons of gold bullion stored in the vaults of the BOE worth, wow, $2.1 billion. Because mm -hmm. they don't recognize him, but rather recognize Juan Guaido as Venezuela's legitimate head of state. Exactly. Now, I know there are a lot of details in the case, but Ambassador, could you maybe give the listeners a general summary of the facts of the case? Yeah, sure. I want to be careful because we have also the appeal as Maduro has asked for an appeal and the appeal comes up now September 22nd, 23rd, and possibly the 24th. Um, and we just need to let the, you know, the courts, the British courts uh, play out they are an independent body. They don't work at the behest of the Bank of England or at the behest of the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. It's completely independent. And the facts of the case are basically, there were two issues that were central to the case. I can lay out the structure, right? So what happened is that last year, as I arrived to post, Maduro had tried to access the gold. And the Bank of England said, uh, yeah, no, we don't, we're not giving you the gold because we don't recognize you because you stole the election, right? So they said, but what do you mean you're the client? So they, we got, in, and there was also another case of a bunch of money, uh, uh, about $120 million that resulted from a financial structure that Maduro had set up. 
And that got deposited into a third-party account. So two parallel competitions ensue. One for the 120 million, who gets it, gets put into a third-party pot, and we start fighting about which side, you know, uh, which side gets it in the courts. And then the other side is, you know, which ad hoc, which board of the Bank Banco Central de Venezuela, the Venezuelan Central Bank, has a relationship with the Bank of England. So they had already said no to Maduro. And in the meantime, Nacho Hernandez, Jose Ignacio Hernandez, who was our attorney general, who's a genius, a professor at Harvard, um, had set up the ad hoc board for the for the Venezuelan Central Bank. And we had been trying to get that relationship set up, to which they say, listen, we need a, a decision from the courts. With the two cases going, then we're sort of stuck in this dance where no neither side has the knockout punch, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, sort of a parallel of what's happening in Caracas. And then Maduro says, I'm fed up with this. He dumps his lawyers, who were perfectly decent lawyers, and hires this other law firm called Zaiwala, who works for Iran. Their previous <laughs> clients are not, ma- you can't even make it up. Their biggest client is Iran, okay? Wow. And their previous work in the Bank of England was for Bank Meli, which is the Iranian bank. And then they said, so they go hyper aggressive and they said, now instead of fighting in the courts or trying to do paperwork, they directly sued the Bank of England. By doing that, which is hyper aggressive, to directly sue the Bank of England saying, I'm your client, you have a contractual relationship with me to do what I tell you to do, and you're failing to do it. Um, That was also an attempt to sideline us, to sideline the Guaido team, to eliminate us from the conversation. The Bank of England says, whoa. I don't recognize your authority to sue me because I we haven't determined whether you're the client. So Maduro says through Zaiwala, let's settle this and let's settle everything fast. Let's settle the issue of the cash. Let's settle the issue of the gold bullion all in one. And we turn around. So first of all, the courts bring us back into the conversation by saying, hey, you know, you can't sue, uh, you know, you can't eliminate Guaido from consideration. This needs to be settled. So that was Maduro's first loss. And then the second loss was we agreed that we said, yeah, let's do it. Let's wrap it all in one and let's accelerate this. We want this settled too. Let's settle it fast. So then we go to court and say what kinds of considerations they wanted. What are the issues to be debated? What is the skeleton argument? That's literally what it's called, a skeleton argument for both sides. Mm -hmm. Uh, The high court decides that you have two central issues. One is called... Um, the recognition issue, which do you recognize? And a second issue that's sort of dependent on the first is justiciability of acts of state, which is rather more technical. Uh, recognition is you have to say what applies is what's called the one voice doctrine, right? So who does Her Majesty's government recognize, period? The court has to look to that. So there you have all the statements of Foreign Secretary Rob, time after time after time, recognizing Maduro takes his cue from that. So that was settled in favor of Guaido. Then the second issue is if you accept that Guaido is the head of, and it was it was unequivocally recognized on two things: the head of state and the constitutional interim president of Venezuela. Those two things, and as a head of state. He then can do acts of state, right, which is to appoint people, to appoint me, to appoint the attorney general, to appoint the ad hoc board. And if you accept that he's the head of state, then consequently you have to accept his acts as a head of state. And the UK can't, you know, look under the hood. Uh, You just have to accept that. So our arguments were very simple. They're very clear in the British courts and very 
very clean and also respected Venezuelan sovereignty. What Maduro has tried to do with the Iranian law firm, well, it's an Indian law firm, but works a lot for Iran, is to say that they have the consideration of, you know, if Maduro considers Guaido a criminal. And they said, Maduro doesn't really enter into this. So that's where we stand. And it's, it was a very, very interesting argument. Then it's, and, and it really took the, the importance of having the visit with the prime minister and statement after statement after statement from the foreign secretary in that strong and strengthening diplomatic relationship with the UK is really what has made all the difference. And it also needs to be highlighted that the British embassy, you know, is in Caracas, but they do not hold voluntary meetings with Maduro. Okay. That makes sense. They may, they get beckoned. They then, they don't have voluntary meetings. It's a big difference in, in diplomacy. Yes. Yeah. That's very, very important to point out. Um, but, at least, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I wanted to point out one more thing that what's important about the case is that it also, you know, as a precedent, it sets the precedent for control of Venezuela's national assets throughout the world, right? Because the courts, the British court system is really the basis of the legal system in at least two thirds of the world, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's very important on that basis, but it's also sets an important precedent. And this is why allowing the appeal to happen and to unfold is important because it sets a precedent globally that democratic forces, this becomes the basis for, to defund your dictatorship. Mm-hmm. Basically, by stating that your dictator is a dictator, uh, that therefore, once you, you can pierce national sovereignty by piercing democracy. So it's absolutely revolutionary precedent and that will you know, be used in say, sort of five years' time. And I discussed this with Guaido when he called me to thank me and to congratulate me and why well, I congratulated him and vice versa, um, is that this becomes a tool for the forces for democracy around the world. Um, And I think once the precedent is absolutely settled, we will see that happen more and more. Give it about five years, but you'll see that happen. So I am, I have to say, particularly proud that uh, I had an opportunity to, to play a role in that. I'm glad you actually pointed that out, Dr. Norman, because that was actually going to be my next question, whether or not this would be a means to establish that important legal precedent for going after the Maduro regime's gold assets in other countries in Europe that likewise recognize Guaido, like Spain or Andorra. So that's very good to hear. The other thing I wanted to ask, Ambassador, is once Maduro loses this appeal, I really hope he does, but um, in the event that he likely does, does that also mean that the interim government of Venezuela would have legal custody over that gold? Uh, yes. So the it allows basically that it, the decision states that the interim government has uh, authority for that um, for that gold, and that then therefore they would have um, that they would therefore have the authority to to have that relationship with the bank. Uh, with the Bank of England. Uh, that then needs to unfold with uh, sort of an extensive due diligence process, right? There's there's signatures, there's uh, you're checking with OFAC, there are mm-hmm. proceedings about how the designations were made, et cetera, et cetera. So there is like when you open a bank account, there's something difficult. Um, you know, it's quite, you go through this whole process. It's absolutely on steroids when it's uh, entailing uh, central banks. So that will still needs to be to play out. But yes, mm-hmm. but um, it means that the government that's legitimate 
will have access to uh, to the gold and to the money. So the last question I have for you, Ambassador, is uh, like we had talked about before, the upcoming rigged parliamentary elections in December. We know why the opposition is abstaining. There's a corrupt National Electoral Council. There's um, This is perhaps something we'll talk about in another episode in the future, this rubber stamp National Assembly that's led by Luis Parra and all these other deputies that have been bribed by money from Alex Saab, who we've spoken about in a different episode. Um, just as a general question overall, how do you envision the political state of the country for the rest of 2020 as things play out? Well, complicated, I think, is really the short answer to that. Unfortunately, um, the fact that, you know, we have now unity in the opposition, that 27 parties said they're not going to the elections. And then we had you know, the joint statement now signed by 32 countries saying that what's happening in, on December 6th will be rejected by the international community. And those two statements are really important because it also speaks to issues like, you know, the access to the gold and, and other things as well. Because remember, all of this happened, and this is another thing I keep saying in, in the interviews, is nobody stole the gold. It is exactly where it has always been. Well, the only theft here has been of the 2018 election. And before Juan Guaido really came in, they were already having difficulty accessing it because of that, uh, because of that loss of legitimacy. So, you know, having another farcical election is not going to put food on the table. It's not going to stop the sanctions, uh, get the humanitarian aid in, which the humanitarian aid can come in at any point. But he keeps blocking it. So the suffering of the people will not end until we get to free and fair elections. And it's really important that we have that unity and to make it really clear. So, you know, at the moment, we're still fighting to continue to build uh, the coalition, the understanding that these elections won't resolve it, and to build the will to help get Maduro out on an airplane out and let, let the country come back. Um, so I think that's really how the rest of 2020 plays out. Uh, we are hoping that the international community will remain fully on board. I don't see anybody turning around and saying, oh, Maduro's a nice guy. Let's just accept him uh, in January. That's just not a feasible scenario. So I think that's how it ends. Uh, I think it just it, it continues to be on a, uh, you know, keeping the ship steady. And that's that's basically the task. Keep the ship steady and try and get Maduro out because in January, when he tries to get himself sworn in again, this, this isn't going to help. Right. It's not going to help Maduro and it's not going to certainly not going to help the Venezuelan people. Right. And of course, follow the right sources, make sure that you're not buying into this disinformation campaign and follow people like Ambassador Neumann. So with that, where can our listeners find you if they want to follow your work and you in general, and your efforts in helping us restore democracy in Venezuela. Oh, thank you so much for that. I appreciate it. This is great. Thank you. Uh, you asked where well, you can follow me on Twitter, at Vanessa Neumann, which is at V-A-N-E-S-S-A-N-E-U-M-A-N-N. -N -N. Uh, very active on Twitter. And that that's probably the best. We also have, uh, I have a YouTube channel. Vanessa Neumann. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of my previous work for, that I was doing on Venezuela at Asymmetrica on their YouTube channel. And that's probably the best is to sort of follow me on Twitter. And there you can also see, um, we also have a, an Instagram of the embassy, which is in Bahada, V-E underscore U-K-I. 
and any of those channels or on our Facebook. But Twitter is probably the best because everything else goes on Twitter. Okay, perfect. If you want to follow listeners, Ambassador Neumann, and the efforts to leverage the support of the international community, specifically in the UK and Ireland, I will provide links to her Twitter and YouTube page in the description of the episode, as well as those of the embassy itself. Dr. Neumann, I appreciate your time so much and your efforts to help us restore democracy in Venezuela. I know I speak for the diaspora here in the United States. We truly appreciate your efforts and we hope that it uh, leads us to the promised land. No, thank you very much. And thank you so much for having me on. It's just absolutely wonderful. Uh, As I said, I love your podcast and podcasts. I'm a big fan of podcasts. I wake up every morning and play a variety of podcasts. uh, And uh, yours is now one of my favorites. So I really appreciate it. And thank you because it's really important to have this space, to have the calm, reasoned conversation about this. Uh, It's it's, uh, unfortunately a bit of a rarity these days. So thank you for your good work. Thanks again for tuning into the State of Venezuela podcast. I hope you enjoyed hearing the story of our country as much as I enjoyed sharing it. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever podcast streaming platform you use. I'd also be grateful if you could leave a review and share it with anyone who might be interested in learning more about Venezuela as well. Finally, if you have any thoughts on today's episode or topics you'd like me to cover in future episodes, drop a comment or send me an email at stateofvenezuela at gmail.com. Thanks again. See you all in the next one.